session topic is cultural trends and how the gospel gives clarity. I've been asked specifically to speak on the topics of social justice and wokeness. So not confusing at all and not controversial at all. Okay. So we're going to do our best to give some Bible answers. I believe, and, and this is just true by the definition of these things, that these are racial issues. So we're going to study them accordingly in pertaining to what the scripture has to say about race, okay? So let me give you a little background about myself. I grew up in West Texas. Not a lot of diversity in our schools. And not a lot of diversity in our churches. I now pastor in South Fort Worth in one of the most diverse neighborhoods in our entire state. Across the street from, uh, across the street from our church is a high school with a 99.9% .9 minority rate, if you can imagine that. Just half a block down the road, there is an apartment complex with 2,000 units. It's like its own small city, and Tarrant County brings political refugees from all over the world there. East uh, Asia, North Africa, places where we technically can't send missionaries. We have to be creative to do it, and God has brought the nations to our doorsteps. In addition to the refugee community, we have thousands of Spanish speakers in our community, as you can imagine, in North Texas. In addition, black people comprise 18% of the city of Fort Worth population. So you're looking at a pasty white redneck from Midland, Texas that God planted in one of the most diverse neighborhoods and one of the most diverse cities in the entire Southwest. Needless to say, for me to be effective at reaching our Jerusalem, God had to do a work in my heart, and he is still doing that work in my heart. Amen. The Holy Spirit has been kind enough to convict me of some prejudice that was in my own heart. He's taught me to appreciate the beauty of other cultures and ethnicities and he's helping our church to love and reach people that don't look just like us. Slowly but surely, our church is starting to reflect the diversity of the neighborhood where we live. And that's a good thing because that means you're actually reaching your neighborhood, right? Amen. More importantly, our church is beginning to reflect the diversity of God's neighborhood in heaven, the neighborhood where we will live one day, which is, of course, incredibly diverse. Now, with all this talk about racial diversity, one of my high school uh, buddies from West Texas might have asked me, have you gone woke? Are you a proponent of CRT? Are you a Marxist now? And here would be my answer. God has used a force far more comprehensive, convicting, and constructive than any new theory. He's used the gospel of Jesus Christ to do a work in my life. Amen. And the big idea of this session is simple. The gospel provides a superior frame of reference for seeing and addressing the racial and cultural problems that we see in our nation. And if we would just believe and practice the gospel, our churches would be the centers of racial reconciliation that God always intended for them to be. That's right. Then we could preach to the culture about biblical justice rather than having to listen to the culture preach to us about social justice. But because we have not historically practiced the gospel, and our churches have not been centers of racial reconciliation, the culture has developed a very different frame of reference for understanding the problems that we're in. And we should not be surprised that their frame of reference is completely different from our own, right? I think if we have been doing historically what we should have been doing, and if we will do it now, we can make an impact on the culture. We heard a session about that this morning, didn't we? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a little time focusing on our frame of reference, just reminding us about what the Bible has to say about reconciliation in a church. Then we're going to look at theirs. We're going to talk about CRT and social justice and all of this. And then at the end, we'll discover some very practical, gospel-informed ways to be peacemakers in our culture, okay? All right, so let's start first with this. We need gospel clarity to see the priority of racial reconciliation. The priority of racial reconciliation. 
I want to read from Galatians 2 and 14. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Now, most everyone in here knows the passage I'm referring to. It's the famous incident where the Apostle Paul confronted Peter to the face. Now, notice this. The confrontation was not about the gospel that Peter believed. Peter believed and preached the true gospel. This confrontation is about the gospel that Peter practiced, or in this case, did not practice. Paul said, you are not walking according to the truth of the gospel. In other words, your actions are out of step with the gospel that you claim to preach. Now remember, Peter was the man used by God to open the door to the Gentiles. But he was also raised in a strict Jewish environment. And some of his old prejudices against the Gentiles were dying a long and painful death. The story goes that Peter was in Antioch. And he was fully embracing his Gentile brothers in Christ. Read Acts 13 sometime. The church at Antioch was an incredibly diverse church with a diverse leadership team. Peter was eating and fellowshipping with those brothers and all the old barriers between Jew and Gentile were falling down. All until a group of Jewish believers from Jerusalem came to Antioch. And pressured by the prejudices of his Jewish brethren, Peter withdrew and separated himself from the Gentiles. That, as you could imagine, was deeply hurtful to the Gentile brothers. And it was harmful to the miracle work of reconciliation that was taking place in the church at Antioch. Now, I want you to think about what Peter's actions said to the Gentile believers in Antioch. You can be saved, but still not be one of us. You can have a seat at God's table, but you can't have a seat at my table. You have access to God, but not to me. Fully accepted by God, but not by us. You may be a joint heir with Christ, but you're a second-class citizen at church. Do you see the discord between the gospel that Peter was preaching and the gospel that Peter was practicing? That's why Paul confronted him. Paul said, this is a gospel issue. And if I don't stand up and say something, these men will divide what God has been trying to unite. And this was enough of a priority that one apostle confronted another (coughs) apostle to the face about it in public. And then, by the way, one apostle preserved the incident in a letter that would be preserved forever that we call the book of Galatians. Someone might be thinking, I'm not sure that there should be a session about these topics at a conference like this. I thought we're here to talk about soul winning and discipleship and missions. Shouldn't we be talking about the gospel? Well, Paul's point is that this is a gospel issue. And when we talk about the work of reconciliation, aren't we talking about the work of the gospel? Sure we are. So just a few bullet points here, okay? Racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. And I don't have time to work through Galatians 2 and Ephesians 2 with you. I trust that you've done that before. Let me just give you this caveat. It's not a justification issue. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, right? And people with racial prejudice are saved the same way that anybody else is saved, by admitting they're a sinner and asking Jesus to save them. So this is not a justification issue. 
but it is a sanctification issue. Remember Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good. All right. In my Bible, Ephesians 2.11 follows Ephesians 2.10. Is that true in your Bible? What does Ephesians 2.11 and 2.18 about? Racial reconciliation. At least one of the good works to which God has saved us is the work of becoming one with people that don't look like us, talk like us, or have the same background we have in this wonderful place called the local church. Now, the work of reconciliation has always been difficult. Many of the same problems that we're facing today in 2022 in America were also experienced by the Jews and Gentiles in the first century. They were divided. Read Ephesians 2 sometime. They were divided by historical, political, anthropological, and sociological barriers. The same barriers we're facing today. The good news is that the blood of Christ removed those barriers and bridged the way for reconciliation, right? I have Ephesians 2, 13 and 16 in my notes. I'm not going to read it. Let me just say this. Did it work? Did the gospel work in the first century to bridge the gap between Jew and Gentiles? Yes, it did. The early church was the most diverse organization in the ancient world. All we hear today is that Christianity is a white Western religion that isn't true today, and it wasn't true in the first century. Somehow, the gospel was able to bridge the relational gap between Jew and Gentile, master and slave, rich and poor, educated Greeks, uneducated barbarians, and I still believe it can. How about you? Notice this. Both racial diversity and harmony will be a reality in heaven. Stephen Chapel preached about that this morning. In Revelation, we learn that some from every kindred, tongue, people, and nation will be gathered around the throne. That tells me heaven will be diverse, right? Uh, contrary to popular uh, belief, God is not colorblind. Ethnicity will always exist. I am going to be a pasty, white, red-haired guy 2,000 years from today in the New Jerusalem. Okay? If Jesus has returned and set it up by then, okay? Ethnicity will still exist in heaven. We will possess it, possess it forever. But while heaven will be diverse, it will also be incredibly harmonious. Because we will all be gathered around the throne of Jesus and we will sing the same song. Uh, we'll be marching to the same drum beat. Uh, we will be in tune, okay? And what is that song? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. The ethnicities were divided at Babel. They will be brought together at the throne of Jesus. Racial reconciliation is our future, ladies and gentlemen. And it can be our present if we will believe and practice the gospel within our local churches. All right, this is what we believe about racial reconciliation. And that's been there for 2,000 years in the book of Ephesians and in Galatians. All right. So number two, let's talk about some of the, the current things we face. We need gospel clarity to understand the problems that are contributing to the racial divide in our day. So let's talk about three sets of problems, okay? Historical problems, philosophical problems, and theological problems. Let's start with historical problems. People like to say that the United States of America has a complicated history when it comes to race. Um, it really isn't all that complicated, okay? Um, I'm thankful for our country, I love our country, but I am not about in this session to ignore some of our history, okay? Our forefathers kidnapped people from their homes crowded them onto filthy, disease-ridden boats, 
And if they survived the trip, they subjected them to generations of cruel bondage. At the end of the Civil War, Jim Crow laws brought legal segregation back to the South. A practice called convict leasing put an entire generation of black men back into pseudo-slavery. Between 1883 and 1941, 4,500 people, the vast majority of them black, were lynched by bloodthirsty mobs. Black people were kept from good neighborhoods, good schools, and good jobs simply because of the color of their skin. These things are not debatable. <coughs> They're a sad part of our country's history. And to their shame, some professing Christians participated in all of these things. And slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, segregation. I'm thankful for those majority culture Christians who stood against those things in those days. And Dr. Chappell talked about some of those heroes, and I thank God for them. I'm thankful for those who fought for abolition of slavery, for those who fought for civil rights. Sadly, if you'll take an honest look at history, they were the minority. Throughout our shameful racial history, some Christians participated in racial sins, some fought against them, but the vast majority said nothing and did nothing and just went with the cultural flow. A group from our church went on a mission trip to Ghana. I was supposed to have some pictures. I don't have them. They made a trip to a castle in Cape Coast. The castle was actually a Church of England church that dates back to the 1800s. Underneath the church was a dungeon where slaves were held before they were transported to the Americas. Imagine the irony of a church having a dungeon in the first place. Imagine the irony of white people on one floor singing, we are free in Christ, and on the floor beneath, people being held in bondage. Okay? Dr. O.S. Hawkins was the pastor of the famous First Baptist Church in Dallas. He recently wrote a book comparing the lives of two notable figures of the 20th century, uh, George W. Truett, J. Frank Norris. It's a fascinating book. Well, in the book, Hawkins points out that during the tenure of George Truett in Dallas, the largest KKK cell in America was located in the city of Dallas. Now, that cell boasted over 13,000 members, most of them anonymous. The only people on the official documents were 100 people part of what was called the Steering Committee. Those were the only ones who ever signed their name to a piece of paper. So years later, when Hawkins became the pastor of the church and became aware of the city's history with the KKK, he went down into the basement and asked for the records of his church membership during those years. And he said, when I started comparing the names on the steering committee of the KKK and the names of the Sunday school teachers, deacons, treasurers, and members of First Baptist Dallas, I stopped counting when I got to 40. So at least 40% of the members of the steering committee of the Ku Klux Klan were members of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Many of you know the name Dr. Tony Evans. He pastors a large church just about an hour from our church, and he has a large radio ministry. In one of his books, he said that when he first tried to get on the radio in our state, there was only one station that would allow him to buy airtime. Imagine that. He was told by several people in the Christian radio industry that their listeners simply would not support a program that featured a black pastor. That wasn't that long ago, folks. Now, if you know anything about the urban alternative, they were really wrong about that, okay? Now, we could go on and on. Here's the point. The climate of mistrust and unrest that we are experiencing today is in part the harvest of the sinful actions and inaction of the previous generation. 
And we just need to be honest about that. And by the way, 50 years from now, some young pastor is going to be preaching in a class somewhere, and he's going to say, Gillette really blew it in these areas. I understand that. So we need to approach history with a spirit of humility. I get that. But everybody that walks into our churches, everybody we talk to on the street has a racial history. And we need to learn how to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to it to bring people. Okay? So there are historical problems contributing to the divide that we're experiencing in our country. Secondly, of course, there are philosophical problems. Philosophical problems. And here's where we're going to get into the social justice and all of that. G.K. Chesterton famously said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And unfortunately, many times in the past, Christians found the biblical teaching on racial reconciliation so countercultural and so different that they left it untried. Well, in their place, a series of new philosophies has captured the attention of the American public. I say again, if the church was the center of racial reconciliation that God intended it to be, there would not be a racial, a racial crisis in our country for us to address. And I'm glad there are churches like this, by the way, that model that racial reconciliation. I know I'm broad brushing, okay? So let's talk about some of the new philosophies and new solutions and how the gospel gives us clarity. Um, let me just give you a few quick definitions. And here's what I'm going to do with these definitions, okay? I'm going to give you the definition from dictionary.com. I have always believed that in a debate about ideas, we ought to let people define their own terms so we don't build straw mans a straw man and burn them down and debate something they're not even talking about. So I'm not saying I agree with these definitions, but these are the definitions that are on a very reputable website. So let's start with critical race theory. What is critical race theory? A conceptual framework that considers the impact of historical laws and social structures on the present day perpetuation of racial inequality. First used in legal analysis and now applied in education, communication studies, and sociology. I do not have the time today to trace CRT to its historical roots. Some believe that it's rooted in Marxism. It certainly uses some of that same language, oppressed and oppressor. It uses some of that language. But again, I think we ought to let them set their own terms. And many proponents of CRT in our day strongly deny their Marxist roots. Let's not argue about that. Let's just take Marxism out of it for a second, all right? CRT proponents view race as a social construct created by racial majorities for the purpose of marginalizing or oppressing racial minorities. And they say that wherever you see power in a culture, you will see someone in the racial majority using and abusing that power. That power can be institutional, legal, educational, political, financial. Anywhere there's power, there's probably, in their view, someone from the majority culture using or abusing that power to the detriment of someone that is a minority. All right? That's kind of what CRT is teaching a big component in the conceptual framework of CIT is the idea of systemic racism. We've all heard that term. Here's the definition. A policy, system of government, etc., that favors members of the dominant racial or ethnic group or has a neutral effect on their life experiences while discriminating against or harming members of other groups, ultimately serving to preserve the social status, economic advantage, or political power of the dominant group. And here's the idea. While the laws that codify racism and segregation have been expunged from our legal system, they say that systems exist with structures of power 
that perpetuate the kind of inequality that we've been having for a long time in our country. An individual may or may not have racist attitudes or use racist language, but can participate in systems that disadvantage people of color. And they will say that historically those systems were created by people who intentionally sought to marginalize people of color, and those systems continue to this day. Another key cog in the framework of CRT is the idea known as white privilege. We've heard about that. Here's the definition. The unearned and mostly unacknowledged societal advantage that members of the dominant white racial group have and members of non-white groups do not have, separate from but compounding with wealth, income, class, education, and other demographic factors that form individual identities. Basically, white people enjoy privileges based solely on the color of their skin and they are not disadvantaged or discriminated against solely based on the color of their skin. Now that's a brief description of some of the philosophies that we've been hearing about on Twitter and on the news just about every day. Now, in the notes, I, I hope it's labeled this way, I labeled it as new anthropologies. Well, I don't think it's in there. But basically what this is, is it's an anthropology. What is anthropology? It's the study of human beings. Proponents of CRT view human beings almost exclusively through the lens of race. Race is the most significant and in many cases the only significant thing about a human being from someone who adopts this ideology. So here's what they're saying. If you're still with me, I know it's getting close to lunchtime. They gave me a heavy topic, okay? This is not my fault. You guys stay with me. Basically, they say this. If you are part of a minority culture, you are disadvantaged, no matter how wealthy or educated you may be. If you are part of the majority culture, you are privileged, no matter how ignorant or poor you may be. If you are minority, you are a victim and oppressed. If you are a majority, you are the oppressor. If you are part of the minority culture, you are inherently righteous and just in their anthropology. If you are part of the majority culture, you are inherently racist and guilty. So you can see how that kind of anthropology can be problematic for people who believe the gospel, right? Yeah. Sure. That being said, I do not mean to imply that there is perfect racial equality in our culture. We have a lot to do, don't we? A lot of work to do. As a white man, I've never been pulled over for the crime of driving through um, a nice neighborhood late at night. And by the way, I love our first responders and thank God for them. There are millions of them doing a great job. But many of my black friends have been pulled over for that. Let me give you an example. My dad started his career in West Texas as a lineman, a blue collar job at the electric company. He had two years of college, but he never did graduate. Well, after several years, he was promoted to a white collar job in customer service and eventually promoted to the engineering department of his company. When he retired, he had a big corner office at the top of his building. He engineered some of the most important projects in his entire company and mentored a team of young engineers. Now, here's what he told me. He said, it is doubtful that in West Texas in the early 90s that a black or Hispanic man without a degree would have been given the opportunity to go from blue collar to white collar like he did. That was a promotion that changed our family's life. And my dad proved he was qualified for it, by the way. He regarded it as a gift from God, and he still does. But he says the human reason why he got that job was because he was good friends with the man who hired him. He said there was a good old boy network. And sadly, in the 1990s in West Texas, many black or Hispanic men were not part of that good old boy network. Here's another example. 
Over the years, my parents developed a very special relationship with a black girl that attended our church. Um, she became a part of our family. My parents helped put her through college. She went to the same college I went to, in fact, got her master's degree, had great grades and a wonderful education. To this day, she comes to our house for Thanksgiving and Christmas. She's really like an adopted sister in our family. Um, one of the issues she faced is that she has a name that's clearly recognizable as a black person. When you read her name, you know that she's black. Her name went out on the same list that they send out to all of the churches who are hiring prospective candidates. And guess what? She didn't get one job interview. She didn't even get a phone call from a church. Our church was the only church that tried to hire her. So you know what she's doing now? She's rising through the ranks of the dental profession. She wanted to be saving souls. Now she's cleaning teeth. There was more opportunity for her in a dental office than there was for her in some Baptist churches. Now, listen, there are some pastors in here who have incredibly diverse staffs, and I thank God for that. I was just with Pastor Tim Rasmussen. Uh, the, the church here is a great example of diversity. I'm not trying to broad brush. I'm just saying that there is really a lot of work left for us to do, okay? That being said, I do not believe the anthropology of CRT is the answer. So I'm glad some people are talking about the problems. I submit to you that a biblical anthropology that sees all human beings as image bearers with equal dignity and the right to equal opportunity, that sees sin as the cause of racial inequality, Christ as the cure, reconciliation, not demonization or victimization as the goal. That is superior to CRT, all right? So let's move on from anthropology very quickly to sociology. Sociology. Anthropology is the study of individual human beings. Sociology is the study of culture. There is some overlap between the two. There are two sociological philosophies that are really warring in our culture right now. The first, of course, is social justice. Social justice basically seeks equality in society. It is sociological equality in society through the redistribution of money, power, and resources. That's social justice. On the other end of the spectrum is another sociology, the sociology of white nationalism. It says that America belongs to white people of European descent, and they should have better treatment. They should have preferential treatment. And it usually ends like this, and if you don't like the way things are, you can just leave. Okay. Now, I don't have the time to compare biblical justice and social justice. Dr. Chapel has written an excellent little booklet on that, and you really need to pick it up. It is really good. What I will say is that biblical justice includes components of personal responsibility that the social justice movement often leaves out. I will also say that biblical justice compels people in positions of authority, whether that be political, spiritual, business authority, whatever, to create systems that ensure equal opportunity. When King Jesus sits on the throne in New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, he will lead a just and equitable society. And people will not be disadvantaged based on their ethnicity. Would you agree with that? Amen. Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world, right? All right. Now let's talk real quick about the solutions that they're offering. So you have new anthropologies, you have new uh, sociologies, and they're offering to us some new solutions. Proponents of CRT offer wokeness as a solution. And this is a buzzword, right? So let me give you the definition. 
Wokeness is having or marked by an active awareness of systemic injustices and prejudices, especially those related to civic and human rights. The word woke is a loaded term. Conservatives use it as a pejorative. Liberals wear it as a badge of honor. It is often used to describe things that don't fit within its definition. It's become an umbrella term that describes some things that, frankly, everyone should be awakened to. So before we talk about what wokeness is, let's talk for a moment about what it is not. And I had a slide. I'm just going to go through these very quickly. Wokeness is not a desire for diversity or racial reconciliation within churches. That's biblical. It's not woke. You're not woke if you are troubled by Christian complicity in historical racism. We should all be troubled by that. You're not woke if you grieve the needless death of image bearers like George Floyd or Ahmaud Arthur. That's not woke. You're not woke for removing racist language from your vocabulary. You're not woke if you want to adopt children from other cultures or other ethnicities. You're not woke if you care about the spiritual and physical welfare of immigrants. The Old Testament says we're supposed to do that. You're not woke just because you're younger than someone else and have a different opinion than someone else. <laughs> and every pastor under the age of 40 has been called that word by somebody. And I don't think that word means what they think it means. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. <laughs> We're supposed to be awake to righteousness. It's righteous to want racial reconciliation. Jesus wants that. It's righteous to search your heart for prejudice, just like it's righteous to search your heart for any sin. It's righteous to treat people with kindness and respect, even if you disagree with them. Every Christian should be awake to those things because those things are righteous. Amen? But the word woke is often used to describe attitudes that are not righteous and behaviors that do contradict God's word. For instance, the church in Iowa who led a prayer to the God of the pronouns. Or the Baptist leader who said that God whispers about sexual sin. Or that Christians haven't been as concerned about gender justice as they should be. Or the pastors that closed their buildings for months out of a desire not to spread COVID but encouraged those same church members to protest with Black Lives Matters an organization that wants to destabilize the nuclear family and is very supportive of LGBTQ causes. And by the way, I know there's a difference between the movement and the organization. Black lives haven't always mattered. They can and should matter, okay? But I want to suggest something real quick to my conservative friends. Instead of using the word woke as an umbrella term to denigrate someone who may or may not have done something that's actually sinful, Let's just call sinful behavior what it is, instead of using that term. Amen. If someone's compromising what the word says about sexuality, let's say that. If someone's joining with an organization that stands opposed to biblical values, let's say that. If someone is embracing actual Marxism, let's say that. But let's not label someone as woke just because they're younger than us and they disagree with us on a matter where the Bible doesn't clearly speak, okay? Now, let's go to the other end. To my friends who might be seriously embracing wokeness, who are willing to compromise biblical positions on sexuality or racial reconciliation so they might have some cultural street cred. To those who are more likely to get their anthropology or socio sociology from Instagram, Twitter, or the book White Fragility. I have some very important questions to ask you. Where is the gospel in the woke system? What is man's fundamental problem 
And how is that fundamental problem addressed? Is being white really an unpardonable sin? Is being black an inevitable sentence to a lifetime of grievance and victimhood? Is racial reconciliation a byproduct of salvation or is it the way of salvation? How does a person gain forgiveness in the woke system? Is any grace available? How much penance does a person have to pay before he earns it? These are important questions. I think that point out that the values of real wokeness are antithetical and opposed to the values of the gospel. Now, needless to say, the new philosophies may highlight existing problems. But the solutions they present are inadequate. They're inferior to the real repentance and forgiveness and grace that's available to all of us in the gospel, no matter our sin. We cannot improve on the gospel. So let's just believe our beliefs, all right? Now, here are some theological problems contributing to the divide, and I'm going to get to these quickly, and you guys have been so patient. My pastor in college used to often say that our philosophy must flow from our theology, when our philosophy is long because our theology is, okay? All right, so here's the theological problem that's contributing to the divide, what I'm calling sufficiency problems. Sufficiency problems. The scriptures teaching on the nature of man, culture, and salvation are authoritative and sufficient. Amen? The Bible is our only rule for faith and practice. So let me just say it clearly. The Bible's teachings on anthropology and sociology are sufficient. So too are the solutions that it offers. To me, this is the fundamental issue in this debate. Christ is sufficient. The gospel is sufficient. The word is sufficient. And where the Bible is believed and practiced, there is a real and genuine reconciliation with the local church that is superior to anything that you can find at a Black Lives Matter march. All right? We have a sufficient solution to this problem. Let's believe it. Number two, there are identity problems. The new philosophies demand that we view people almost exclusively by their racial status. While the Bible embraces the reality of diverse cultures, it basically espouses two primary identities, sinner and forgiven sinner. And when we are forgiven, that is our identity. The black believer is not a victim. They are victors through Christ. And if the white believer is not speaking or acting in prejudiced ways, if they are loving people from different cultures and ethnicities, they should refuse white guilt because they are not guilty of anything. I refuse to see my black brothers as oppressed. And I hope that my black brothers in Christ will refuse to see me as an oppressor. I want to see them the way Christ sees them, and I hope they will see me the way Christ sees me. So there are sufficiency problems, there are identity problems, there are salvation problems. Scriptural reconciliation requires confession, repentance, restitution, and forgiveness. And don't leave a step out. But when there is confession, repentance, and restitution, there should and must be forgiveness. And where there is forgiveness, there should be reconciliation. Scripture, scriptural uh, reconciliation is motivated and empowered by grace, not grievance. And the woke system is presenting a salvation that is foreign to the salvation that we see in the gospel. Mm. All right. Let me give you number three, and we'll do it quickly. Okay? We need gospel clarity to be peacemakers in our cultures and churches. 
We just read Matthew 5 and 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, <laughs> for they shall be called the children of God. And I wonder, with this war between white nationalism and CRT and woke and conservatism and all of it that's going on, I wonder if we as Christians have really been peacemakers in our church. And whether we've really been peacemakers in our culture. Can I give you three practical suggestions to help you be a peacemaker? First of all, acknowledge our history. Just acknowledge it. Daniel 9.4. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession. He goes on to say, we have sinned and committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Daniel acknowledged and even identified with the sins of his forefathers. Now, I noticed this. His prayer of repentance was to who? To the Lord. And I want to say it again. The racial unrest in our country is the harvest of some of our national sins. We are reaping what we've sown, but first and foremost, we should cry out to God for mercy. Uh, Daniel was willing to be honest about his nation's history, and the Apostle Paul was willing to be honest about the unrest that they were facing in the first century. Let's just be honest about some of our own situations, too. I love this country. I love our freedom. I'm thankful for our soldiers and first responders. But in addition to our gratitude for our country, let's be honest about our sins. Accept that racism is a historical and contemporary problem. And that many Christians have contributed to the problems rather than healing them. Let's admit it. Let's learn more about parts of our history that we haven't always been quick to learn about. Because the Bible says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the who? The humble. Pride and a refusal to learn and listen to our brothers and sisters in Christ from other ethnicities will only lead to more resistance. But the humility to learn and listen and to acknowledge racism for the ugly thing that it is will bring God's grace. Let's just acknowledge it. Number two, let's believe and practice our theology. Let's believe and practice our theology. Here's the note. When the gospel is believed, a sinful person is reconciled with a holy God, right? When the gospel is practiced, a sinful person is reconciled with another sinful person. So when the gospel is believed and practiced, the local church becomes a center of racial reconciliation and a foretaste of heaven on earth. And here's kind of what I came to tell you very practically. We need some more Pauls. We need some more peacemakers. Paul loved his own culture, but aren't you glad he loved people from other cultures too? Paul was willing to become all things to all people so that he might by all means win some. He built deep friendships with people of other cultures and invited them into every aspect of his life, both personal and ministerial. Paul was saved by a peacemaker, so he became a peacemaker. He believed the gospel, he became like the gospel. Amen. He recognized that his Lord was willing to sacrifice his life to bring Jew and Gentile together, so he was willing to do the same, and even to take stands that were unpopular to do so. We need some leaders who will stand against racism and partiality. We need some leaders who will intentionally seek friendships and ministry partnerships with people from different ethnicities. We need some leaders who will ensure that everyone in their church has an equal opportunity for ministry and leadership. That is so important. And we need leaders who do these things not because they want to score points on social media, but because they are compelled by the gospel that they preach to do so. So acknowledge your history, believe and practice your theology, and then lastly, this is simple, 
just love our brothers. The root of racism is hate. Hate for someone God created. Hate for someone that Jesus died for. And I want to say to people on both sides of the aisle, we will not overcome hate with more hate. We will not overcome evil with more evil, whether it's in Portland, Oregon, or in Washington, D.C. Where do we overcome evil? With good. And how do we overcome hate? Love. And let our churches be the place where that goodness and that love that has been so genuinely given to us by God, where it flows through us to other people. So we've looked today at our framework. We've looked at the framework of some who maybe don't quite see things the way we do, and we've given you some practical suggestions for being a peacemaker. We have in the gospel a superior frame of reference. Believe it and practice it. All right? Did I burn through all our time? That was great. All right. I think I burned through all our time, didn't I? Let me pray, and we'll let you get to lunch, okay? Father, thank you so much for your word written thousands of years ago, but is the most relevant and sufficient answer to the problems that our culture is facing. And may each of us come away from this session with the understanding that we need to believe and practice our own gospel, and we need to be active in this work of reconciliation. As we heard this morning, improve the culture in our churches so we could make an impact on the culture around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.